If everyone would like to open their Bibles to Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 to 19. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things are hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The supremacy of Christ, that's our topic for today, and that was the topic of the whole letter of Paul's to the believers in Corinth, as he, excuse me, in Colossae, as he wrote to the Colossians. What is supremacy? What does that even mean? I went to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it gives this interesting definition, the supremacy, the quality or state of being supreme. Also, having ultimate and final authority or power. Great word. The passage of Scripture speaks of the greatest, the ultimate, the most important personality of the universe. And that is the God of heaven and earth revealed in a Son. This is the very heartbeat of Christianity. This is the very essence of all that we believe, the very foundation of our faith. This is the battleground over which we fight with the cults and the isms throughout history. And everything else that wants to take the very lifeblood out of Christianity. And the lifeblood of Christianity is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's theme here in these verses this morning. And this becomes then not only a very vital passage for the argument of his letter, but this is much more even a vital passage to the argument for all of Christianity. And if we don't believe in the supremacy of Christ, the ultimate authority and power of Christ, if we don't believe in the ultimate and final truth of Christ, then our faith is founded or built on sifting sand. The Bible has been called the Jesus book. And in a very real sense, that is absolutely true. Because if you go through the whole Bible, you'll see Jesus. In the Old Testament, there's the preparation of Jesus' coming in all the prophecies. In the Gospel, there is the presentation of Jesus. God, uh, Jesus has come. In the, in the Acts, there is the proclamation, the message of salvation in Christ that is then being preached in the epistles, all the letters to the churches, we study the personification. That is, for to me to live is Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Of how Christ, who has died and risen from the grave, now can live in us and have a personal relationship. And then in Revelation, there's a Christ on the throne, the reign of the King. So in every sense, the whole Bible, from the beginning to the end is Christ's story. 
good example of that. Remember in Acts chapter 8, we read a fascinating story about the Ethiopian eunuch, who, Acts tells us, was an important official in charge of all the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was on his way back to Ethiopia, and he stopped to rest by, by the roadside, and while he rested, he began to read, and it turned out he was reading Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit told, told Philip, who happened to be, pass, happened to be passing by, uh, Philip, go over there and start a conversation with that guy. So Philip goes over to say, hey, my friend, what are you reading? Isaiah? Do you know what that means? No clue. Well, let me tell you, Philip says. And there in verse 35 of Acts 8 says, Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture, Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, and told him the good news about whom? About Jesus Christ. Folks, we can begin at almost any spot in Scripture, and we can teach Jesus. Remember in Luke chapter 24? Verse 27, Jesus, after his resurrection, he appeared to a couple of disciples and just started walking with them on the road to Emmaus. And it says, and beginning with Moses, talking about the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the way through the rest of Scripture, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. So the Bible is a book about Christ. It is his story. You can find Christ anywhere in Scripture. But all of the statements in the Bible about God becoming man, I would venture to say that none is more significant or more powerful than the one that we find here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 19. With that in mind, listen again. When Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and, and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's an amazing passage. A vital statement to the understanding of the Christian faith, and a vital passage to remove any confusion of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, why did Paul feel that it was so important to write that at this particular time in this particular letter? Well, you'll, you'll remember that we learned that Epaphras, the pastor to the Colossians, had come and shared with Paul about the heresy relating to Jesus Christ, uh, was being taught in the area, and he was really concerned about his own people. Now, the heretics were saying that Christ is not God, that he is not sufficient for salvation. Part of it, but not sufficient for salvation. That in addition to Christ, there must be the worship of other spirits, perhaps other angels. And we'll be looking at that as we look, uh, go through Colossians. There may be special visions. There, there must be certain super knowledge beyond which is attainable by Christ. 
In fact, the heretics had said that Jesus is only one of a long line of spirits descending from God, and therefore knowledge beyond Him must be had in order for, to, to receive this full salvation. So in the first three chapters of Colossians, Paul takes on this issue. I could give you example after example here in Colossians, but we're going to be getting to all of them in the course of time. So let me just give you one in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, where Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness, to completeness. He is ahead over every power and authority. He is the head. He is the ultimate. He is supreme. There is nothing that is needed other than Jesus. Now last week in verses 12 to 14, Paul thanked God for the salvation that the Colossians were enjoying, the redemption or the forgiveness of sins. And now he moves right in from there to make his point about this one who has redeemed us, this one who has uh, forgiven us, this one to whom, in whom we have received an eternal inheritance, this one who has delivered us from the power of darkness, this one who has transferred us into the kingdom of God, this one, Paul is saying, is the image of the invisible God. This morning as we look at these verses, uh, 15 through 19, I want us to see Jesus Christ in relation to five things. We'll see him in relation to, uh, relation to God. We'll see him in relation to the universe. We'll see him in relation to the unseen world, his relation in the church, and his relation in anything else that might be left over. And I'm going to be focusing majority of my time on the first two, and then we'll briefly look at the last three as well. First of all, we see Jesus in his relation to God. And there are actually two aspects that Paul points out. Verse 15 is a great definition of Jesus in terms of his relationship to God. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, one of the things that the heretics believed and were teaching is that all matter is evil, and that the human being being matter is evil, and that the world being matter is evil. In fact, the Gnostics heard, uh, held that the view that everything in the world was created not by good, but by evil. Therefore, all matter is evil. That was logical to them. Remember, too, that the heretics had said that Jesus is only one in a long line of spirits descending from God. And not only that, but that each successive spirit that descended from God was more evil than the previous one until a horribly evil spirit created this horribly evil world of matter and bodies. That was their teaching. But Paul says, Jesus Christ is God. In fact, in verse 16, he says, He created everything. He's the one that did it. The heretics went so far even to say, uh, to teach that God could never enter a body because a God, or God, entered Entering into body, that would mean then a good God would be entering into an evil body and can't do that. And so to get around this inconvenient truth of Christ being present on earth, they said he, you know, he, had, he had to have had this ethereal, phantom-like, ghost-like body, which you could sort of see but left no footprints. 
So Paul wants to make it clear, because of these bizarre kind of teachings, that Jesus is in fact God, and that He is God in the flesh, and that He is the creator of the universe. The truth alone, that truth alone will wipe out their whole argument. So let's take a look at the masterful job Paul does here in this short passage. And in his relationship to God, Paul first of all says in verse 15, the Son is the, invis- uh, is the image of the invisible God. You know, we have that expression, uh, he's a spitting image of his Father. And that just means that he looks so much like his Father. It's obvious. But that's not what Paul was saying here in this Verse. To begin with, God is invisible. First Timothy tells us that. The Old Testament tells us that God is invisible. He cannot be seen. No visible, uh, not visible to the human eye because God is spirit. And you remember Jesus telling the disciples after his resurrection, when he appeared to them, he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see me. Why? For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. God himself is invisible, but God became visible. God became a man through Christ, and Christ was made, Christ was God made visible. He is the image of the invisible God. One author described him as the only really true, graphic, perfect, flawless, absolutely accurate image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 describes Jesus as being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. What does that mean? A good definition of that is that the brightness of his glory means a setting forth of God, showing the, the, all that God is. He is that which comes from God to reveal the very essence of God. He's also expressed image of his person, of the person of God. He, he, he is the exact image, the perfect image. The substance is the same. You know, I found it interesting that the word for image that's used here in classical Greek is for a stamp or engraving tool that made an exact stamp or an exact replica or reproduction. Jesus is the exact reproduction of God. Nothing missing, nothing altered, nothing changed. In Philippians 2, verse 6, it says, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, Christ having the very character and form of God, it says, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man. You know, interestingly enough, the Hebrew people of the Old Testament always thought of the revelation of God's personality in terms of what God said. They couldn't see God. We've already talked about that. But they, there were many times where they heard God. Over and over again in the Old Testament we read, And the word of the Lord came to so-and-so and said. What do you think that was? Or perhaps a better question, who do you think that was? Every time the prophets and others heard God's voice, I believe that was Jesus speaking. Because we know from John 1, 1, in the beginning was what? The Word. The very Word of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the voice of God. And now in the New Testament, Jesus also becomes the image of God. 
That's why Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. One and the same. The Son, then, is the only perfect representation of God. We obviously are not. However, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It comes into us as well. How is that possible? He says, in the face of Jesus Christ. It's only because Christ is living in us and manifesting himself through us. You remember in Genesis when, when all was perfect? God created man, it says, in his own image. However, we are not the image. That's Jesus. And because of sin and the sin nature that, that is now inherent in us, we are a marred image. We are inadequate, an inadequate image. Jesus Christ is the only adequate image. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, the terms of his relation to God. He, he is a father, <clears throat> excuse me, he is a firstborn over all creation. Firstborn over, over all creation. What in the world does that mean? Firstborn of all creation. How can it say he was a firstborn when there's a whole Old Testament full of people that were born before Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Well, the easy answer is that this phrase refers to position, not time. Usually when we think of firstborn, we think in terms of a timeline, right? Uh, the first one born in a series of children. In, in, in my family, I'm the third born, not the firstborn. And that's when that person was created. But Jesus was never created in time. Remember in John 5, 58, he made the statement, before Abraham was, I am. Horrible grammar, right? Present tense, using the very name of God Almighty for himself. In Revelation, he says, uh, it says here, he's the one who was and is and is to come. So the first board can't be referring to the beginning of Jesus because time doesn't even pertain to him. He has no beginning and he has no end. So what's going on here? What's Paul saying? Well, the word for firstborn in Greek is prototokos. It's the word for firstborn that refers to position. It refers to rank, the right to authority, not to chronology. What's the difference? The firstborn is the one who has the rights of inheritance. Now, oftentimes, they were the one and the same, chronologically and the right to inheritance. He is the one who ascends to the leadership of the family. In the Jewish context, everyone knew that. But remember, the story... You remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Esau was actually the firstborn in terms of physically being born. He would have been considered the firstborn, the elder. But Jacob was, became the prototokos. He got the blessing. He got the right of the firstborn. He was made firstborn. In Psalm 89, verse 27 um, in, in, which, uh, in what's called a Messianic psalm, a psalm referring to Christ or the coming Messiah, we read this, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The highest, great definition of the firstborn in this context. The one who rules over all. And that's exactly what Paul was referring to in Philippians chapter 2 when he explains that Christ humbled himself and made himself nothing, 
But then in verse 9, he says, Therefore God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He became the prototokos. That at every name of that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the firstborn of all creation. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 89, 27, where it says, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the, king, king, uh, of the kings of the earth. Hebrews 1, we are told that God has appointed his son heir of all things, the prototokos. In Revelation chapter 5, God is on the throne and the scroll is in his hand. This, this is fascinating. And the title deed to the earth, sealed with seven seals, as was customary with the Roman law, so no one except the heir could open it. And beginning in verse 1, we, we read this, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who's that? God Almighty. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. They're saying, where's the firstborn? Where's the prototokos? Where's the primary one? Where is the heir? So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Then he, the lamb, Jesus Christ, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him, his father, who sat on the throne. He is the prototokos. Jesus, here is Christ taking the title deed to the earth from his father as a prototokos to take over and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And the sad fact, folks, is that the one thing One of the greatest things that Satan wants to do is to make sure nobody understands that. To make sure nobody really believes Jesus is God. To make sure that nobody really believes that He is not the Creator. Or that He is the primary one, the highest one, the firstborn of all personalities. That He is supreme. And that's exactly what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this age, and we know that's speaking, uh, that's speaking about Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So verse 15 here is a powerful, powerful statement of who Jesus is in relation to God, showing the supremacy of Christ. Now look at verse 16, and we see Jesus in his relation to the world. Actually, his relation to the whole universe. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. 
All things have been created through him and for him. Now we just saw how Jesus has the authority, the first place, the rule over all creation. Why? Because he created it. John 1.3 says, through, all, through him all things were made. Nothing, without him nothing was made that has been made. That's exactly what verse 16 is saying. For in him all things were created. The Greek word is katizo, to create. The Greek dictionary says it's speaking of God creating the world to form, to shape. It's interesting that it's also used in the context of completely changing or uh, transforming. It's a secondary definition in the Greek dictionary. And we in Christ are what? New creations. We've been changed. We've been transformed. Christ is the Creator God. Now, I don't want to belabor that point too much this morning because I want to delve into it in, in greater depth next week. But you may say, well, yeah, what, what about science? Well, we need to ask the question then, who's science? God's science or man's science? Next week, we're going to be looking at the question, did God really say, getting back to our series that we did a while back. Did God really say He created the world? But there is something else that kind of pertains to this uh, in verse 17 that I, that I want to look at just a second before we look at the rest of verse 16. Because it has to do with the created world. He says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I found this fascinating as I started studying, studying this. He is before all things. I don't think that's a huge mystery to us. We, I believe we believe that. We've talked about it already this morning. We're well aware of John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was a Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning, before anything was created, Jesus was. He had to be there before because He was the one that created everything. You remember what Jesus said about himself in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He is before all things. Before anything was, there was him. I know that's not good grammar, but that's the truth of it. He said in Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the Alpha and Omega, first and the last, beginning and the end. A couple of verses later in verse 16, he says, I am the root and offspring of David. Have you ever thought about that phrase? How could you be the root and the offspring of the same person? How could he be David's father and David's son? He is. He is because he's before all things and he's after all things. He is the beginning and the end. And, the end of verse 17, in him all things hold together. And Hebrews 1.30 adds to that, He sustains all things by His powerful Word. This is fascinating. He holds all things together and He sustains all things. He keeps everything working. How? By His powerful Word. Really very simple. He created everything with a Word. Go back to Genesis 1.1. He created everything with a Word. And he holds it all together with his word. Everything is subject to him. Folks, mankind, listen carefully, mankind, because this is an issue in our society today, mankind cannot destroy this world because Jesus is holding it all together and it's Jesus that is sustaining it. 
So here's a question. What's he holding together? All things, Paul said, right? All things. What does that mean? Well, very literally, it means all things. Not complicated. So let's talk science a minute. I'm not a scientist. Wasn't my major. So I need to investigate. I need to research. And I'm quoting here, and it says, quote, nuclear science tells us that all substance in the universe is constructed from three fundamental little particles called protons, electrons, and neutrons. We've studied this in science classes. You have a nucleus in which you have protons and neutrons and little electrons shooting around the outside. There are the basic building blocks of all matter. Paul describes it as all things. The protons and neutrons make up the nucleus of the atom. Now, each proton carries a positive charge of electricity. Yeah, you say, well, so what? Well, there is a law of science that they call Coulomb's Law of Mutual Repulsion. This is named after a man who came up with this law. And the law says, like charges of electricity and magnetism repel each other. And the simplest example of that is you take a magnet and put the two positive sides together and, and you, you, they won't touch. They're repelling each other. So within the nucleus of an atom, positively charged protons are all rebelling against each other, pushing each other away. And I quote, Coulomb's law of mutual repulsion between objects is at work in the nucleus of every atom, trying hard to destroy it from within. So, what is it that holds that nucleus together to keep it from exploding? Scientists have come to the conclusion that there is some kind of a force. Isn't that interesting? Some kind of a force that's doing that. And they've brilliantly come up with a name for it. Are you ready? They've named it the strong nuclear force. Seriously. I kid you not. So I looked up a definition for it. Here it says, the strong nuclear force, the fundamental force of nature that holds protons and neutrons together in the atomic nucleus. So I read further. And again, I quote, the strong nuclear force is one of four fundamental forces in nature. The strong force is felt between nucleons, protons and neutrons together, inside of a nucleus of an atom. The strong nuclear force is sometimes referred to as just the strong force. Interesting. This force is strong enough that it overcomes the repulsive force between the two positively charged protons and allowing protons and neutrons to stick together in an unimaginably small space. Remember, all matter is made up of these protons and neutrons, atoms. The strong nuclear force, it goes on to say, is what holds together atoms and pieces of atoms. In other words, it's what holds, what? All things together. If the strong force, they continue to say, were suddenly gone, listen, every atom would suddenly fly into pieces. In other words, they would all explode. This concept of this strong nuclear force was not discovered until 1932, 90 years ago. Folks, Paul described it 2,000 years ago. 
Listen, when Jesus calmed the sea, you remember that. When Jesus calmed the sea, how did he do it? He spoke to the wind and the waves and said, peace, be still. And they obeyed him. I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to think that Jesus said to protons, stick together. And they collectively said, okay. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 1.3 And in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 Man calls it a strong nuclear force. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls it Jesus. See, the question is not what holds it together. The question is who holds it all together. You know, one day when it gets to God's appointed time, I believe he's going to unstick all those protons in the atoms, and the universe will explode in some kind of a nuclear fission. Listen to how Peter describes it in 2 Peter verse 3, verses 10 to 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The word destroyed, luo, literally means to loose. Isn't that interesting? To loose, as in to loose any person or thing tied or fastened. Jesus will take his hands off all of those atoms and the earth and everything done in it, Peter says, will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? You ought to live a holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. The strong nuclear force is gone, and everything dissolves and melts. The releasing, the loosing of the binding force, destroying the nuclei of all the atoms. The law of repulsion takes over. Cologne's law of repulsion destroys the universe. But until that time, Jesus and Jesus only will hold all things together. And will sustain all things by his word. Which means there is no danger of us destroying the planet. So Jesus in his relation to the world shows the supremacy of Christ. The third thing Paul speaks about here in Colossians 1 is Christ in his relation to the unseen world. Back in verse 16. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible. Then referring to the invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This category includes all things spiritual, all types of spiritual being. You remember remember that only angels were created in the beginning. Jesus created angels. And it wasn't until the mass rebellion and disobedience uh, against God that led by Satan, that a slew of those angels were, were left and they are now referred to as demonic spirits. There are different rankings of angels, and therefore there are different rankings of demonic spirits as well. And, and Paul uses the terminology of thrones and powers and rulers and authorities to indicate that fact. 
And we know he's speaking about the spiritual realm here, not, not the physical realm, because Paul used the same language in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, for our struggle is not against uh, flesh and blood. It's not against people against people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the invisible. In Ephesians 1.21, Paul says that Christ is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked Not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. He says, God has placed all things under his feet. So not only did he create everything in the invisible uh, world, but he also reigns over it all. 1 Peter 3.22 tells us as well, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers in submission to him. So we see Jesus then in relation to God. Jesus in relation to the world or even to the whole universe and in relation to the unseen world. And each one continues to show the supremacy of Christ in every situation. And fourthly, in verse 18, we see Jesus in relation to the church. Now that's nothing new for us. We've taught that, we've read that, we've studied that. So let me just read quickly here what Paul is saying. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He's a beginning in the firstborn, prototokos, same word, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So he's the head of the church, the body. And as we know, the church is called the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and we are like the limbs and the organs, all functioning in direction from the head, the brain that is controlling the body. The church then is an organism. We are inseparably tied together by the living Christ and as he lives within us, the same life, we are joined inseparably to him and inseparably to one another. That's why we are called to come together, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to work together to accomplish what God wants, what the head of this body wants. Then he says he's the beginning of the church, the beginning, ark, or arche, actually in Greek, where we get our word ark as an archangel the highest racking angel. There are two senses to this word, and both refer and both fit actually Jesus. One is that he is the beginning, because he said the beginning of the church, the beginning of the church, the church began in Christ, and he is the chief. He is the ark person. He is a premier authority over the church. So he is both the source of the church, his originating power, and the chief or primary one of the church. Then Paul says he is the firstborn. That's that word prototokos. From among the dead. Of all the people who have ever been raised from the dead, he is the chief. He is the one who is primary. He is the leading one, the ranking one, the greatest of all. And fourthly, so that, Paul says, so that, in order that, so it can be said that in everything he might have the supremacy. What was the thing that gave him the supremacy? The fact that he was raised from the dead. Because he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. Philippians 2. He has a supremacy. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory. Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. One author wrote, 
It stands to reason, I believe, that one who is first in rank in the universe, one who is a point of reference for history, one who is the agent, the goal, the forerunner, the sustainer, the governor in the sphere of creation, the one who is the head of the church, the one who is the beginning, the source, the chief one, the one who is the ranking one of all those resurrected, the one who is the first fruits of them that slept, that one has a right to the title supreme. And that is Jesus. Lastly, Christ in relation to everything else. He has the supremacy. Just in case he missed any categories, Paul covers it here. Not only is Christ supreme over all things, but Paul says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The word translated fullness is a Greek word, pleroma. And one of the reasons he uses it is because it's a technical term in the vocabulary of the Gnostic heretics that were teaching false theology. It meant the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. Paul uses this same word eight times in the four chapters of this letter as he hammers the truth into their hearts that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is supreme. And the word to dwell is just as important. It means much more than just to reside in. We dwell, we reside in our homes. But here the form of the verb means to be at home permanently. Dr. Kenneth Wust, a noted Greek expert, points out in his commentary on Colossians that the verb indicates that his fullness was, and I quote, not something added to his being that was not natural to him, but that it was a part of his essential being as part of his very constitution, and that permanently. The fact that it pleased the Father to have all his fullness dwell in Christ is proof that Jesus Christ is God. And that was Paul's point. All of God is in Christ. They are one. You know what's so cool? John 1.16, Out of His fullness, we have all received grace. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace. When we confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, all that He is becomes ours. Amazing truth. Verse Peter 3.15, we, we are told, in our hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Make Him supreme in your life, Peter is saying. Make Him King. Make Him truly Lord of all. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not For human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. In whatever you do, Jesus should be supreme. You know, I think oftentimes in believers' lives, they have this convenient separation. Yeah, I believe that. That's for Sunday stuff. That's during my quiet time stuff. Over here, I'm at work, I'm with my friends, I'm doing all, everything else that I want to do. And we have this bizarre way of being able to separate what we say we believe and the actions that we actually have. And Peter is saying, in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord over all. And whatever you do, 
in what you ponder, in what you say, how you express yourself, the way you treat your husband or wife, in the way that you treat or raise your children, in the way that you work, in the way that you vote in the polls in a couple weeks, in what you read and what you watch and what you search on the internet. Make him supreme and love him and work for him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. After all, that is the greatest command that God has ever given to us. Supremacy of Christ. Father, this morning, I pray that this truth would be refreshed in our minds, not only in our mind, but that it would go down into our heart and just fill our heart, not only with understanding, but in transforming everything about us. That in everything that we do, every minute of the day, every decision that we make, every move that we make, we will be referring to Christ because He is supreme. He is the Lord of our life. He is the King of our life. And Father, I pray that you would move us to that point if we are not already there. Perhaps as a step, and then another step, then another step. But Father, I pray that we will all have Jesus as the supreme one in our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.